there's a commonality in terms of the fear that people get of having to expose themselves and be vulnerable in front of other people. And the thing is, is you need to remember everybody gets that feeling. It's just a matter of how you're going to show your cards. So are you going to be the person who melts down because you're just overcome with emotion and you can't get through your presentation because it's just the pressure is too hard? Or are you going to be the person that says, you know what, if the person on the other side of this table was in my shoes, they'd be just as nervous as me. So I'm going to push through this thing as hard as I can. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people who have lived or peeked behind the curtains of a world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. My next guest is Mike Kinney, otherwise and previously known as Cowboy Gator McGraw. Now, Mike is a former pro wrestler, and for those of you who are the uninitiated, such as myself, that is the type of wrestling that made Hulk Hogan famous. He is also now a global TED sensation after his talk on Turning Up received over 1.1 million views on YouTube. And it was a talk that began like this. Picture it. A big, sweaty, tattooed man in a cowboy hat and chaps is in the ring as the arena full of fans cheer him on. Their hero, Cowboy Gator McGraw. Gator bounces off the ropes and is quickly body slammed to the mat. His wild opponent leaps into the air, crashing down onto Gator's ribcage. Gator struggles to breathe, wondering, is this really what my father wanted for me? Now, that doesn't seem like the most obvious career progression, does it? From dominating the ring as a flamboyant character that you carefully created and curated, to bearing the real you on center stage for millions to see. However, it happened as a result of Mike's core belief, something we'll be talking a lot about today, and that is that you are always more than you think that you are. Now, I first came across Mike when someone sent me his TED Talk with a note that said, you got to watch this. Now, at first, being a well-known non-sports fan, I didn't jump at it. And then I guess I just got intrigued. And it sat there in my inbox for a while. And I started thinking about, before I watched it, like what would it take to show up that hard as a pro wrestler? What would it take to develop that much certainty that you can have an entire arena believe or choose to believe the impossible. So watch it, I did fall in love with it and him, I did. And I have to admit, I, I assumed, wrongly as it turned out, that our conversation would be a light-hearted one, one about confidence, maybe something to share with your children about standing up and fearlessly owning all of it. You know, after all, this man has wrestled some quite scary dudes wearing only chaps, and I cannot think of a bigger embodiment of confidence than that. However, this conversation took us way deeper than that. And, and now with hindsight, I think I can, I can understand why. You know, when we, when we talk about owning our influence, being an influencer, leading an industry, 
more often than not, the conversation will turn to one question. And that question is, who do you think you are? Sometimes it's referred to as a personal brand, although I've never been a big fan of that term, mainly because it usually comes back somehow to your appearance. However, basically it's the same thing. Defining what it is that makes you unique and then ensuring that that shows up in every single experience the outside world has with you. Now, Mike and the world of pro wrestling is perhaps, I think almost certainly, one of the most extreme and concentrated versions of this process. You know, he told me, he told me the story of the first time, which you'll come to hear, the first time at wrestling camp as a teenager when he and his classmates were actually asked to go away and spend time identifying who they wanted to be in wrestling. The elements of their character that they wanted to amplify, the parts they felt that made them stand apart and shine. Now, can you imagine if we asked that question in every school, in every workplace, you know, minus the costumes or, or not, but what a powerful question to base a life and a career upon. And in that moment, Mike realized something and he realized this, that the best fighters, the ones he admired, were the ones who were just authentically themselves, but turned up. So what does that mean? Well, being turned up means being unshakable in your belief in your own capability. It means owning your space to the extent that you cannot be ignored. It also means shutting out your inner critic long enough to go out there and fully own your space. It means bringing every fiber of your being into whatever room or ring you are walking in and driving towards a thing that you want the most. So enough about the one woman fan club that is me. In this conversation, we talk about the five lessons to turning up your strengths, the five keys to becoming unforgettable. And ultimately in those moments that we all have of self-doubt, when you feel like you don't know what you're doing, and you don't want to turn up. In fact, quite frankly, you just want to turn off. How to dust it off, stand tall, and show up. Now, I can genuinely count on one hand the number of times I've actually watched a wrestling match. But if this sport produces humans as compassionately fierce as Mike, well, perhaps I'm going to be watching it a lot more often. So sit back, relax, or take up your favorite wrestling stance. I really don't mind. And enjoy this whirlwind conversation with Cowboy Gator McGraw, Mike King. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Kinney. Thank you very much. Is it Mike, do I say Mike Kinney? Do I say Cowboy Gator McGraw? Is there a- <laughs> well, it depends on what circles you travel in. Um, I'm fine with either. <laughs> I'll go with Mike for now. I'll, I'll work my way up to to okay, Gator. Good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start this episode the way that I start every episode, and that is to ask you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And I think especially in the world, the two worlds that you traverse, wrestling and and everyday life, I'm gonna I'm really interested to know how you'd categorize yourself there. Yeah. And you know what? I knew you were going to ask me this question and um, I don't know if I still have an answer. So I'm going to try to navigate through this the best I can. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily for 
easy for anybody to define themselves as either. I don't know that I necessarily am either, but I know that I can walk within both spectrums really well. I think that when I get in front of my peers and um, my professional life and when I'm asked to do uh, different leadership roles and things like that, I'm certainly comfortable being an extrovert. But if you were to see me at home in my tank top and shorts mowing my lawn and my neighbors are out, I'm not necessarily going to go out of my way to strike conversation with everybody uh, that's around me. I, you know, sometimes for me, a good time is, is sitting inside at home and, and watching Netflix or something like that. So I think I, I, I can be an extrovert when I need to be. And I'm Otherwise, I would consider myself an introvert. I like to sit back and observe a lot. So if I'm around a new crowd of folks, I'm going to observe before I engage. So whereas some folks will walk into a room and, and take over immediately. I just, I'm just I'm looking at a photo of you at the moment and I'm just thinking for an episode about confidence. I'm staring at a, at a man in chaps and a cowboy hat. <laughs> seems <laughs> seems kind of fitting. Um, but let's talk about how you got there. And, and where there is, because um, there's there's different versions of where there is. You grew up you grew up watching wrestling. I did, and yeah. you used to watch it with your dad, and you wanted to be the world heavyweight champion. And so I've got this right because I'm not. I, I can't. I could count on one hand the amount of times I've actually watched wrestling. Is this this isn't normal wrestling, is it? This isn't. This is a different type of wrestling. Yeah, the, right. This is. Um, stereotypically what people refer to as fake wrestling you know the the theatrical hulk hogan and stone cold steve austin type of wrestling but strangely enough probably the most popular form of wrestling oh by far yeah. by far and we'll get into we'll get into why that is so you used to you used to watch it with your dad what was it that captured so captured your imagination about that particular sport I can remember one of my earliest memories is watching wrestling with him. And there was a segment on whatever wrestling show that we were watching. And I, I have it on VHS at home. So for those of you that don't know what VHS is, you know, this is an old, old version of media. So I, th this, this wrestling show came on and I remember watching these bad guys beat on this good guy that everybody was cheering for, but it wasn't in a ring. It was at a gas station and there happened to be a film crew there. And I remember, you know, my dad screaming at the TV, someone help him, you know, and I, you know, I was probably four years old and, um, and then I couldn't help it that the energy that my dad is putting off watching this, I thought it was real. I thought this guy is genuinely getting assaulted and there's cameras. So everything's going to be okay. Cause the police will see the cameras. And then of course, these guys had a great big match in the ring to follow that feud. They had watching these characters on television. They were so much bigger than life. They were, they were uh, over the top and they were vocal and they were clear, good guys and clear, bad guys. And, it's the, it's the old good versus evil. And, you know, as a four-year-old, I'm right there with my dad and we're always rooting for those good guys to win. And maybe they do, and maybe they don't, but I, I was hooked from the very first match I ever saw. I thought this is amazing. There were other kids I know that I was friends with that were into superheroes and th things like that. And I remember going to school shortly after I, I bet I was in first grade. And I specifically remember the teacher saying to, to all of us, 
we're going to draw a picture of what you want to be when you grow up. And so kids are drawing pictures of policemen and firemen and, and doctors and things like that. So I draw a picture of Hulk Hogan, you know, yellow little underwear and a big handlebar mustache and giant muscles. And, and I remember the, the teacher looking at me and saying, you know, you can't be a wrestler. This isn't, this isn't a profession. And so I thought, okay, well, guess what? Now I, now I'm definitely going to do this because someone said I can't. So, um, and it just stuck with me. My, my whole adolescence, that's all I ever wanted to do when I grew up. That's it. And you, it was something that you shared with your dad as well. You had mentioned it was something really special yeah, he, that you guys shared together, which becomes more and more apparent as your story kind of unfolds. Yeah. The, the more pushback I got from either my friends or, or teachers or whoever it was, because it, it's an entertainment industry. And if you, if you say, I'm going to be the next, you know, Michael Jackson or Madonna, people are going to scoff at you because there's only one Michael Jackson or one Madonna. So the, the survival rate or the expectancy rate to be able to, to survive in an entertainment industry is slim. And so I, I understand that teachers and, and folks like that are being more um, grounded, but I wanted so much more than to be a lawyer or whatever it was that everybody else wanted to do. And my dad never once told me I couldn't do it. So that was also my thing is if my dad tells me I can, maybe these teachers don't know what they're talking about. And, and he had told me at one point, and I was still very young, uh, elementary school. And he had said, okay, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a professional wrestler, then you're going to be my retirement fund. And that was it. That was kind of, kind of our thing for a long time. So you, you signed up to, we're still in the beginnings. You, you signed up to a wrestling camp. And what I thought was just fascinating about that was the first lesson you had to learn was how to develop your persona, which just doesn't apply to anything else, does it? It, it doesn't apply to any other career path. It doesn't apply to any other sport. And it, and it got me thinking that, you know, probably this type of wrestling was the first version of a very public personal brand, a, a carefully crafted, very intentional, very deliberately amplified brand. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of anywhere else where where that happened so early on in a career that became such a conscious choice to build that. And it's kind of scary too. It's almost scarier than being a student in, in high school and for you to try to figure out what you want to go to college for to be the rest of your life. It's That's the only thing I can even compare it to because I didn't know. And when I had started wrestling, uh, I just kind of grabbed whatever clothes and whatever, whatever outfit I could throw on to just um, start kind of learning the, the ropes, I guess, so to speak, and traveling a little bit. And, but it, I didn't have very many matches before I started to kind of peel the layers back on what my character was going to be. What I did know was that there was a significant lack of actual characters. And I, and I don't mean people, I mean, actual characters within the wrestling circuit at the time, everybody, this is kind of in the stages of when, um, the UFC was in its infancy, but everybody that I wrestled with wanted to look like the UFC guys. They, so in essence, everyone began to look the same and they all had a very similar body type and wrestled a very similar style. And I didn't have that body type and I had no interest in UFC whatsoever. And I thought if I can't wrestle as good as some of these guys, 
then I need to stand out in other ways. I need to be a character. I need to do more than what they're doing because they're going to be people that, you know, in any given wrestling show, there can be, I don't know, five, seven, eight matches, something like that. And a lot of the folks you watch wrestle on these smaller independent shows are forgettable. And I didn't want to be one of those. What I wanted was for when the kids and adults left that show to remember me, they may not even remember who wins or loses because I don't even know that it matters. But what mattered to me was that not only did they remember me, but in some way I made an impact on them because I don't look like everybody else. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be someone who I'm not. And so that's what stuck with me in the early days. And were there many others at that point? I mean, I literally only remember Hulk Hogan and I think a, a couple of the bad guys that he fought. And that's so interesting as well that everybody was categorized in kind of either the good or the, or the bad guy. It, it's almost like in wrestling they learned really early on that, that you know, there needs to be a story told. Every match kind of has to tell, has to tell this epic battle almost. Uh, and that's part of the lessons they teach you at the wrestling school. There, There is always, even if it's two good guys wrestling each other, there's always going to be some little twist of, uh, of good versus evil within that match. There's going to be some kind of um, head-to-head that these two didn't get along and some conflict that needs to be resolved. And um, no matter what, no matter what kind of match you were going to have, it had to tell a story. And so do you know, I mean, just a quick aside, do you know the history of that? Do you know how it started? Yeah, it, it's it starts as early as you know Barnum and Bailey. Barnum and Bailey would put on uh, in their circus. They would put on these exhibition fights, which were um, not really as scripted as much as they were. Um, the the outcome was decided, and so when they started to realize that that fans needed emotion to be, you know, attached to a match, they needed to be emotionally invested in whatever it was they're watching, just like we do on television now. They figured that out early on where the easiest story to tell is good versus evil. It goes back as far as anybody even wants to remember, and it's the easiest story to tell. So they exploited that, and it just snowballed from there into what we see wrestling as today. And so you you started doing it. Um, you obviously loved it. And, and then something really pivotal happened in your life. It did, yeah. I've never publicly told this piece of it. So uh, my dad was 44 years old and he was as healthy as can be, real big guy, you know, very, very tall and muscular. And he, I was, I was out at a party um, with my friends the night before and I had gotten home and gone to bed. And my sister, who was um, five years younger than me, so I was 19 at this time, so she was 14. Um, had woken me up and said that, and this is about six o'clock in the morning. And she said that dad, uh, his boss called and I can't wake him up. He's not getting out of bed. And it was very rare because my dad was never late for work. He was never sick. Uh, he was a meat packer, you know, worked a very physical job and got up at three 30 every morning. You could always count on that. And I went upstairs to where his bedroom was and he was face down on his bed. It was dark in his room. And I remember saying, you know, dad and then slowly got louder and louder to the point where I was screaming it and I knew I just I knew and my sister and I had gone over to his bed and uh, you know we again he was face down so we rolled him over and um, 
he was purple and stiff as a board. So he'd been, he'd been gone a while. And we called a, we lived on a farm, so we were pretty rural and we called an ambulance, which took about a half hour to get to our house. And my sister and I, uh, and my mom was away on business. So she was a few hours away from, from home. And we had called her and told her she needed to be home right away. And she and I, my sister and I sat in the living room of our house, uh, and waited for the ambulance to come just kind of in shock. And, um, you know, they took my dad out of there and, um, so I actually had a wrestling show. This is on, I want to say a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And I had a show that I was booked to be on that Saturday. And I had called the promoter and I had said, you know, what, what had happened? And he said, well, you don't need to worry about coming. We'll, we'll replace you. And my house is full of people by this point, you know, it, full of food and full of people that want to feed you and you don't want to eat and you don't want to see people. Right. So this is, <laughs> I needed to, I needed to escape a little bit and, um, the funeral hadn't even happened yet, you know? And so that Saturday came around and I showed up to the venue, which is about, I don't know, an hour or so from my home. And, and, uh, that's, I'm sitting in the locker room and it was very, usually the locker room is very, um, fun. It's a fun atmosphere. There's a lot of camaraderie and, you know, you're getting ready for, for your big match. And I remember it was just silent and nobody really said anything. And, um, my dad was, he, he came to all the shows that I had been on. So all the wrestlers knew him. So it wasn't just really me that was mourning him. It was, it was everybody because he wasn't there. In fact, in fact, he had come so much that, um, they had reserved one chair for him and put a rose on it, um, in the front row that nobody else was allowed to sit on. And there was this, this family, um, feeling that, that had come over me because of all, I mean, this is a, nobody had to do anything like that for me. And one of the guys who would train me, um, and I, and I was kind of sitting by myself and I don't think anybody really knew what to say. Everyone was still kind of in shock. And, um, one of the trainers had come over and he had told me, you know, he had asked if I was, how I was doing. And, and I said, um, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I, I didn't know if I wanted to be there or if I should have been somewhere else or, um, but it, it felt right to be there. I, you know, I don't know if my dad would have wanted me to be there, but it felt like he did. And, and I needed the, the outlet to kind of, um, digest what was going on around me. And I remember that he had sat down next to me and it was so quiet. It was so quiet back there, which is just rare in a, in a locker room. And he finally leaned over and he said, the best wrestlers are just themselves, but turned up. And I have never forgotten that. And, and that is where everything changed for me from that day on. It's, um, it's weird because it is exactly, and I often think if I hadn't gone to that show, would how, how different would my life have been had I not been there that day? So the best wrestlers adjust themselves, but turned up. And we'll get into how you turn yourself up a little bit later. But in those moments, in those moments where you either don't feel like you can turn up, or in those moments where what you're feeling in that moment, you don't really want to amplify it. You don't really want to be seen in that space. What do you do with that? Because the thing about showing up and the thing about turning up 
is it doesn't tend to care what's going on for you at the time. You know, a wrestling match doesn't care. The audience don't care to an extent what's going on for you at the time. And that was obviously a very pivotal moment in your life. What do you do then? Do you shut it down? Do you, do you channel it? What did you do? I think that if you can recognize that you have the ability to turn up and we all do, it's just a matter of having the ability to recognize it, then you should always embrace it because there are going to be people out there that never will be able to do that. And it's a, it's not something that you can learn. It's just something innate within ourselves. But again, we all have it. Can you pick and choose when you do it? I don't think so. I think that it's just, it's, it's part of your DNA. It's part of who you are. It, it, the only thing I can really liken it to is, and we've all been there. It's where you are moving through your life and you pass an opportunity that you know is an opportunity at that exact moment. And a week later, a month later, a year later, however long it is, you regret it. You regret that you didn't take some kind of action. And had you turned up at that moment instead of doing nothing, maybe you wouldn't have that regret. And we don't know how sometimes things are going to turn out. But exploiting the moment and, and using the moment for who you are, um, we don't get very many moments, you know. So it's a matter of taking advantage of them when we have them. And there's no perfect moment either. I think as you get older, no. you start to notice that more and more. There's no, there's this amazing quote by Brene Brown that I think I have, I apologies to Brene, I think I've misquoted her about five times on it, but it goes something along the lines of that period of that, that moment where we, we say no to something and we decide not to turn ourselves up or not to show up because we think in the future we will either be braver, skinnier or wiser. And I'll do it then. And that moment, you know, that moment never arrives. Yeah. And if you, if you can choose to show up in that moment of just losing your father, you know, that's a moment that traditionally a lot of people wouldn't have felt was the best moment to turn themselves up, to amplify themselves, to show up in the ring. And yet it became one of the most profound moments of your life to date. Uh, I would, yeah, that's a, that's certainly true. Yeah. And so you, you showed up on that day and then what I love about, what I love about where you went with it next, you were saying what you took from it was find the traits within yourself that you're strongest at and make those the focus of who you become and for you, who you become in the ring. And I love where you went with it because rather than, I think I would have in my head gone, okay, well, I'm strong at this particular move. I'm strong. I mean, I don't know many wrestling moves. I'm strong at the body slam or I'm strong at yeah. this, but you, you didn't go there. You, you went to, what am I strong at? I'm really comfortable with my own body. I'm going to start there. A lot of people struggle with their image. And as a teenager, I was certainly no different. Um, I think that I think that I knew at a very young age that if I could go out there like that, you know, wearing a small, wearing my my trunks, you know, my wrestling trunks or speedos, people like to call them, right? Um, 
I knew that if I could go out there in front of folks and do that, it would, it was more for me. It would help me break out of my own shell and be able to kind of, I don't want to sound corny, but, um, blossom into something different. You know, it, it was a way, it was the way that I knew that I could push myself as hard as absolutely possible. If I was going to go this route, then I was going to go hard and there's no turning back. Just describe your outfit for anyone who hasn't seen, <laughs> who hasn't well, seen the photo. Know, it's a, uh, it's uh, a Speedo, essentially a bigger version of a Speedo and um, cowboy boots. You know, I wore a pleather vest and pleather chaps and a cowboy hat and um, yeah, and I'm covered in, in hair and, uh, you know, I'm about 260 pounds and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing good for 260. I think, you know, I've always been good for 260. So, uh, it was, it was, a, it's a manageable, manageable 260. And so <laughs> it, uh, it just, I knew that, you know, the, the big men that, that were wrestling when I was growing up didn't have to be covered in muscles. Certainly some of them were, um, but my, my, approach to it was more of a throwback look. It was kind of a nod to the dusty roads of, of, of old, you know, he was a, a prominent wrestler in the seventies and eighties and even a little bit into the nineties and very, very giant man who wrestled in very much what I wrestled in. And, um, I wanted to make sure that, that if I was going to chase this wrestling dream, I was going to do it. I was going to be comfortable being uncomfortable for a long time. And again, I just, I love the fact that you decide what you decided to turn up again, going on that, that turn, it is just who you are, but turned up, you chose, you chose who you are as opposed to what you could do. You chose to turn up who you are as an, as an individual. So how do you show up hard every single time? Cause you need to show up 125%. You don't get to show up and go, you know, Gator, Gator's tired. just a little bit tired today. And some wrestlers do that, believe it or not. We in in the wrestling world, we um, and in the professional world too. We you hear the term uh, they they mailed it in, and that happens in wrestling too, where guys just don't they're not feeling it, right? Um, you know, I always made myself a promise where is if I right before you walk through the curtains to go out to the ring, you get this overwhelming um, a feeling of butterflies in your stomach where you, you kind of want to throw up and you kind of want to run away, but it's pure adrenaline. And I always made myself the promise that if I don't feel this way anymore before I go out to the ring, it's time to walk away from it. And I think that's a piece of it. I, I wanted that. I was, I was going after that piece. I wanted to make sure that if, if somebody was paying to see me, then I owed it to, to them to give them the show they expect. And I would say almost every time I wrestled was, was very much, very much like that. But you being genuine and being authentic, it's, it's just, it's a matter of getting from point A to point B and not wishing you'd done it differently. The, I, What's so interesting about what you just said is that feeling that you describe, you know, that, that cross between wanting to throw up, wanting to run away, wondering why you ever said yes in the first place. That's a feeling that I, I could think I could say most of us, certainly a good portion of us, that's something to, to run away from, not something to, to run towards. And it sounds like you had, you developed a really unique relationship with fear. 
they almost had to embrace it. Otherwise, it was going to – I had one goal, and it was to be world heavyweight champion. And all the other stuff that came in my way to get there was was my fault. So if I'm if I'm wrestling today somewhere where I don't want to be wrestling, I put myself in that position, and it's my job to make the best out of it that I can because you just never know who's watching you and how – that can turn into an opportunity for you to do something more. You talked about being the intention, the intention being to be unforgettable, which I think is just a great word. What did you, what did you learn about that, that word through all your experiences wrestling? Is it, is it usually the the loudest or the most skillful or the one with the, you know, most exciting looking outfit that is the most unforgettable, the one that, the audience cheer for or connect with the most, or is it something else that makes yeah, a wrestler unforgettable? There's a lot that goes into that. I think the first place it, it starts with is knowing that that wrestler has confidence in themselves. And you can see that as soon as they, before they even get in the ring, you can tell if this person is comfortable doing what they're doing. And, and then next to that, it's what were they doing different? that was um, maybe something they hadn't seen before or maybe hadn't seen that day from a fan's perspective. And, and from there, I mean, it, I was very um, involved with the audience. I was generally, I always played the good guy. And uh, if you've ever heard the song by country music song by big and rich, save a horse, ride a cowboy. I would go out to the ring and I would sing that song and then I would get the fans clapping and I'm giving high fives and, you know, connecting with children and everybody in the audience and getting them to sing my theme song with me as well. I mean, it's the show before the show. I mean, if I couldn't be, and I knew I wasn't going to be the best technical wrestler. So I was going to make sure that the things that I had control of, were going to be as big as they could be and as fun as they could be and memorable. And it's a show, you know, and, and I was going to give them a show. If you, just translating that for a second, if you had to give advice, if there's somebody out there listening that has to give a big presentation, a presentation that's potentially pivotal in their world, and they want that presentation to be unforgettable, they want to be unforgettable, they're pitching to investors and they want to be the one that they re- remember out of all the other pitches, what would you, other than wearing chaps, which is not always yeah. feasible, <laughs> or maybe it is, I don't know. What, what advice would you give on how to be unforgettable? You know, I, I've taken a lot of public speaking classes and the, there's a commonality in terms of the fear that people get of having to expose themselves and be vulnerable in front of other people. And the thing is, is you need to remember everybody, everybody gets that feeling. It's just a matter of how you're going to show your cards. So are you going to be the person who melts down because you're just overcome with emotion and um, you can't get through your, um, you can't get through your presentation because it's just the pressure is too hard? Or are you going to be the person that says, you know what, if the person on the other side of this table was in my shoes, They'd be just as nervous as me. So I'm going to push through this thing as hard as I can. And, you know, I gave the TED Talk. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. I'm sure you do. A lot of those TED Talks are edited. There are 
the day that I spoke, there were 12 speakers um, and some of them forgot their lines during their TED Talks and some of them walked off stage and some of them um, just couldn't live within the pressure. And so, and but some of those, those exact ones I'm talking about, some of them actually did make it to TED.com and they're edited so well, you'd never know. Mine is unedited. What you see is what you get. I didn't melt down. I wasn't going to melt down. And I knew that there, there's an opportunity here right now. And if I don't take it, then somebody else is going to. And that's one thing that everybody needs to remember. That's your moment. Do not let somebody else take it from you because you might not get another one. I think from watching you and, and listening to you, and I've, I've watched your talk oh, countless times, um, it, both in the prep for this and also when I first discovered it, sent it around to the team, we were talking about it. I think one of the, the lessons that I took out of it, it is going, going hard out of the gate, you know. You don't, you don't work up to it. Like if you're, if you're giving a presentation or, as you said, when you're walking on to your theme tune, you go hard out of the gate. Give it, leave everything you've got on the field. Don't think, you know, I'm going to – I'll play my best card later when everybody – you know, when I've warmed up. By that point, the, their minds have already moved on. You need to take your moment as soon as it arrives. Make a huge first impression. Is that something that you that you would agree with? Is that something that you consciously learned how to do when you when you became a wrestler? I, I not only agree with it; I've I've experienced it countless times. I'm one of the I'm one of the fortunate who've had many moments, and every single one of them. Um, I've been able to build on after the fact, but I don't recall not one of those moments. And I knew it was a moment at the time. I knew it. Not one time have I experienced one of those moments, right, where I've looked back on it and regretted anything I've done. Because I know that I brought my best self every single time. And it might sound a bit like a cl cliche, you know, in terms of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best me I can. but that's a real thing. And if you honestly can't, if you don't have the ability to do that, um, you need to start getting comfortable. And you, and if you want to be that person, you need to start getting comfortable with, um, uncomfortable situations. And it's not, <laughs> trust me, it's far easier said than done, but you know, in wrestling, we call it no selling. Have you heard this term? No selling. No, I haven't. When somebody hits you um, and you don't act like it really hurt and you just kind of stand there, that's no selling. So if I'm going to punch you, Julie, which I'd never do, but if I were going to, I'm very grateful and for I that. Give you one, <laughs> and I give you one of my wrestling punches and you just stand there, then everybody knows that I'm a phony and you're a phony and everybody else associated with me is a phony. And the best thing you can do is never be in a situation where you're no selling people because then you've exposed yourself and everyone else around you and you might not get that moment back. The, you're reminding me there's, I've always felt that there's a big difference between confidence and certainty. And, you know, too often I think we wait and I hear it over and over again, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to feel more confident. I'm, I'm going to do that when I feel more confident. 
And I believe so firmly in every bone of my body and in my whole career has done nothing but back this up that confidence is something that arrives, that shows up when we show up. Confidence is the result rather than the the starting point. You show up enough times, you're going to get confident. It's not something that, that shows up beforehand, but certainty on the other hand, certainty is something that you can tap into at any time. And certainty is exactly what you were just talking about there. Certainty is I give the best of me, everything I have, everything I know, everything I have learned, I give the best of it to you in this moment. And tomorrow might be different. Tomorrow I might learn something new. I might change my mind, might change my persona, might change my outfit. But in this moment, I give you the best of what I have, of what I know to be true. And the sensation of someone being, you know, when you were saying the no sell, the the sensation of someone being certain, being bulletproof is the opposite of that no sell. You know, it's the, it's when you fully buy in to where they are in that moment and, and that they're offering everything that they've got, every shred of themselves. And yeah, I agree with you. I, yeah, I think that was less of a question and more of a, more of a statement. I, I, yeah. I just think that waiting for confidence is this myth that gets perpetuated over and over. Oh, he's so confident. Of course he can do that. And Confidence just doesn't arrive. It doesn't arrive. It never arrives. Yeah, it's it's earned, right? You earn that piece. Yeah. It's it's the wings that show up after you've jumped. Right. Um I want to get I want to get to the TED Talk. So just to you know, you, eventually you your career evolved and you're wrestling four times a week all around the USA so you you were living the dream that you that you set out to achieve. And then you get this phone call to do to do a TED talk, and I wasn't going to ask you about about that, but we had a really you, interesting conversation about it before we went on air. And you were talking about your experience of once again having to turn yourself up on a different platform in another level of discomfort. Can you tell tell us a little bit more about what that was like for you? And it eventually, you know, one and a half million views the last time I looked. Yeah, it's uh, it's still surreal but the the real story behind um me doing a ted talk is um, i work for united parcel service and they have a partnership with the ted organization and once a year um there's a collaboration and they call it ted at ups and the corporation as a whole submitted ideas to all 450,000 employees and said hey look does anybody have a what if and it can be anything you want but the only caveat to this is you have to be an expert in whatever it is you think can actually develop into a TED Talk. So I had no idea that, first of all, I never thought that they were going to pick me because of a company that large. I knew there were going to be numerous submissions. So initially I submitted the idea and TED started, you know, there was nothing. There was, in fact, time had passed so long that I, I almost forgot about it. And then I had gotten a, an email from someone from the TED organization that said, look, we want to just ask you some questions about this wrestling thing. And I said, okay. And so they set up a call with me and um, they started asking me what college I wrestled at and things like that. And I said, oh no, we're, I'm sorry, we're talking about two different kinds of wrestling here. That's, that's collegiate Olympic wrestling. I used to hit people in the head with steel chairs for a living. So that's, it's different, right? And so, so that piqued their interest even more. They really wanted to find out um, how I developed my character 
and through a couple of conference calls with the TED organization, they said, we, we like the framework of what you've submitted us, but we think you can really, um, we, we really were hoping you were going to talk more about the development of who you became in the ring. And I didn't have anything really initially in the, the first draft I submitted had nothing about my dad in it. And that was one piece that I didn't even tell them about until we were three or four weeks into the development piece. And they said, you really, you know, need to put that in there. That's extremely emotional. And still at this point, they hadn't told me I was selected yet. So the thing, anybody who does a TED talk, the individual who is speaking, they write their own speech. Nobody is doing that for us. And so finally I <laughs> submitted a draft. And, um, and it was probably legitimately 20 drafts by this point. And I was getting frustrated with the process and, you know, I'm, you know, done with this or whatever it was. And, and finally they said, look, we've selected you. You're one of 12 employees at UPS. It's going to be flying from Minneapolis to Atlanta, Georgia to give your Ted talk. And it still really hadn't sunk in at that point. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen in terms of uh, ex not just exposure, but what was that going to do to me? And I was finding myself in this situation where um, I had never really spoken about my dad publicly before. And I was having to relive his death over and over and over. And we rehearsed for uh, months, uh, probably four months. And I went through legitimately 50 drafts or so until the final one was approved. But as I would rehearse this at home, in my shower, in my car, wherever it was, it was taking an emotional toll on me. And at one point I, I told the folks at TED, I said, look, I need to just, I need a week off from this because it's, it, it's just, I haven't had to really, I haven't had to live this life again for so long. And my dad is buried about six hours from where I live. And I don't, get down to see his gravesite, but once or so a year. And I took that week off from the Ted piece and I went to this tiny little town in, in uh, middle of nowhere in Iowa. And um, I booked a bed and breakfast and I stayed there for a few days and spent some time at his grave that I, I had never done that before. Um, spent long periods of time there. And then um, I, I went home and then the real work began because I had I guess in my mind, I had gotten permission to move forward with it, as, as bizarre as that sounds. Yeah, I think also the, I can imagine the, the discomfort of, you know, before you would, you would show up as Gator and now you were showing up, showing up as you, and that would be a whole different level, a whole different level of, of discomfort with the rawness of your story with your dad I can imagine that would have been a difficult platform. It was, um, it was a lot. The, the day that we did the talks, I was, I was the final speaker of the day. And so it was a very, very long day. And I sat in the green room and I watched these speakers go up. And the, the longer the day got, the more, the more nervous I got. And as I told you, some of them, and they were all such great people, but some of them would, um, we're, we're struggling on stage. And I knew as, as I'm watching them thinking, if I don't go out there and just crush this thing, people are going to leave this event. I was only worried about the event that day that 
the people were going to leave the event and think, what a joke. So the pressure of not only telling my story on stage, but, but being the, the final speaker of the day who really needed to turn himself up, right. To, to be able to, to make this thing as memorable as possible. <laughs> I had to go right back into that state of mind with, with the Gator piece. I do remember as I would warm up for wrestling matches, a lot of times I would have my headphones on and I would listen to music. And so um, I had my iPhone with me and I had my bag and I had some headphones from the, from the flight. And I thought if I'm really gonna, if I'm really gonna do this, I got to channel him again, you know, that inner Gator. And so I warmed up for the Ted, um, my Ted talk, exactly how I would have warmed up for, um, a wrestling match. I stretched out a little bit in the back. I listened to music. Um, I paced, I practiced, I paced some more. Um, and I just put myself, I just got in the zone and there was no breaking me out of the zone. I, the second I stepped foot on that stage, um, I knew it was go time. And, and it was, uh, there was, I didn't realize when I had gotten up there and again, I had, I had said my Ted talk so many times out loud at this point, literally hundreds of times that some of the areas were easy for me to gloss over at this point, especially when I got to my dad, because there was no emotional connection to the audience and you're staring at the audience and they're staring at you. And there's an energy involved with that. And as I started to get into the pieces about my dad, um, my mom is sitting front row and my wife, and they've broken out into full-blown tears. And, and I had begged my mom. Uh, she, she hadn't heard my TED Talk until I performed it live. Um, I said, there's some stuff about dad in here. I, I just, you got to hold it together for me, please. And, you know, moms are moms. And <laughs> she, um, she tried. And as soon as I saw her crying, I just, uh, I started to choke up on stage myself. And I had to slow down, think about, you know, think about what I was doing and and keep pushing because i i didn't want to let i didn't want to let myself down and especially when you put yourself out there like that the worst thing you could do is let yourself down and i pushed and then you you got the email saying what did the, what did you say the email said it, it was first of all it was also kind of bizarre because i when i finished the ted talk the entire audience stood up and I got a standing ovation and there were 12 speakers that day. There was only one other person that got a, a standing ovation and I totally was not expecting it to happen. And that emotion in itself just, it swept over me. I could kind of exhale that it was done, but I knew the real work was about to begin because people were obviously drawn to this story. I mean, they're standing ovation. And that night um, people are coming to me saying, your talk is going to get to ted.com for sure. And, and I hadn't really thought about it at all. It wasn't a goal of mine. I just wanted to go out there and just, just crush it in front of everybody and just, you know, not be forgettable. And when I, so it was a, maybe a couple of months later, I had gotten back home and settled back into my day job and life is seeming normal again. And out of the blue, I got the email from, um, the TED organization that said, um, congratulations, Cowboy Gator McGraw. You've been one of five selected to go to TED.com. Now, how does that compare to wrestling? And that was the first time 
since all of this had even started that it started to hit me that it was it was extremely emotional for me and i just you know sat in my bedroom and bawled and bawled because i was so proud and i know my dad would have been proud and i was relieved that it was over and it was i couldn't believe it was happening and it i never expected it i never it was never something that i was chasing um but it was it was a very very welcome surprise and the power the power of that of that story like i said it's 1.5 million so far it's reached all around the world here's me sat in australia talking to you <laughs> talking to you now that's how far it's gone and i think from watching you and, and talking to you now you know it's been such a delight the the lessons that you have taken from your journey and the the places that you have taken it in your own self into the person that you that you have become i think are just are just incredible and that takes me to my to my final question you said that you you work for ups now and and i know that your decision to retire from wrestling was because because you became a father and yeah you decided that being thrown around and hit with a steel chair for a living maybe wasn't maybe wasn't the best way yeah, the, the right. best way to, to keep going which i'm i'm very sad to hear just personally the i'm just i'm really interested in you become a father you step away you step away from the wrestling ring what's the what's the largest lessons from everything that you've done that you now instill into your children as a result of all your experiences? You know, I, I'm very, very proud of my children. Um, I, I'm proud of who they are today and they're still very young. My, I have twin sons who will be seven years old in just a few weeks. Um, I have a daughter who's beautiful and 10 years old and um, they all have a little bit of dad in them and, um, and, and the good parts too. And I'm so grateful for it. They, they're very comfortable with who they are and unapologetic for it. They are reserved at first. And when they decide that it's time to open up, they give you their best selves. Um, they're very, very polite people. And um, I think a lot of that comes from their mother. <laughs> and so she gets, she gets a lot of credit for this too, because she's been dealing with me for a long time and, and she's a great mom. And um, between, between their mother and I, I, I tell them every day how much I love them and they will never be from, come from a home where they don't remember mom and dad saying, I love you. We say it every day. We eat dinner together every single night. Um, we, family is extremely important to us and I always make sure that they know that it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. You need to be comfortable being who you are and comfortable doing what you want to do, whatever it is. And I'm going to support them because my dad supported me and I wouldn't be able to be the man that I am today had my parents not been able to instill that lesson in me. And I, I hope that they become as great a people as I know they can be. Okay, final Final question. If I, if I could give you the stage, I know somebody already did that, but if I could give you another stage and I could put in front of you everybody that you would ever want to influence, 
and I gave you a microphone in five minutes. What's the, what's the one thing I'm going to get specific about this. I'm not usually, but what's the one thing about turning yourself up that you would want them to know or to understand so that they could go out there and actually put it into practice? I don't want people to think that, that turning yourself up um, is going to make you this great person because it's, it's you who's going to be the great person. Turning yourself up is actually allowing you to be the biggest version of yourself so that you can expose parts of yourself to ideas and lessons and experiences in life that maybe you wouldn't normally get the opportunity to do. So when those opportunities come, it's a matter of being in that moment, embracing that moment, and going as hard as you can to make sure that you give it your all so that you don't regret any of those moments passing you by. Thank you, Mike Kinney. Thank you. Thank you, Cowboy Gator McGraw, for, for being on and sharing of yourself so fully. I wasn't expecting such a full and rich conversation as, as we've had today, and I, I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. It really is. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.